The doctrine of discovery is the current system of laws and policies that justify the removal of land from indigenous peoples. These laws are rooted in church doctrines that originated in the 15th century. Together, we will uncover this deep structure of colonization that systematically deprives indigenous peoples of human rights. I'm Sherry Hostetler, and I help start a coalition of Anabaptist people of faith that seek to dismantle the doctrine of discovery. I'm also a Mennonite pastor in San Francisco. And I'm Sarah Augustine. I also help start this coalition. As an activist and scholar, I'm the descendant of the Tewa people and a displaced person. This is the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery podcast. Support from this podcast comes from Bethany Theological Seminary in Richmond, Indiana. Bethany offers in-person and distance learning options and generous financial aid so that students can answer a call to ministry and service without taking on additional debt. Students choose from a variety of graduate certificates and degrees, including the brand new Master of Arts in Spiritual and Social Transformation, combining faith formation with professional growth. Learn more at bethany.edu slash M-A-S-S-T. In this episode, I tell the story of how I discovered I was a white settler. So Sherry, I've told my story in episodes one and two of this podcast and how I discovered the doctrine of discovery and its impact on my life and the lives of indigenous peoples. One thing I've been wanting to talk to you about is how did you discover that you were a white settler? I'd just like to hear about your story. Um, Just by phrasing it that way, I'm really asking how you learned about the doctrine of discovery and colonization. Well, I will be glad to answer that question, and I'm going to get there the long way. Um, So I am a host outler, and I grew up with this story that was very important to the host outler, host outler, same thing, family. It's almost, I would say, a sacred, iconic story within many Amish families, because many Amish families, no matter what their last name is now, can trace their ancestry back to Jacob Hostetler, who was a Swiss man who immigrated with his family to this country in 1738. And he is my fifth great-grandfather, great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. Jacob, John, Henry, Noah, Henry, Ira, Lyman, and Lyman's my dad. So I just want to say, Sherry, how cool it is that you know who your fifth great-grandfather is. I actually know who my sixth great-grandfather is, the one who didn't immigrate. And actually, they're trying to reconstruct it further than that. Hmm. You know, I'm going to say a little bit more about that, but I just realized it's an incredible privilege to know that. I'm glad I know that. So Anabaptists, meaning Mennonites and Amish, they, they, they came, they poured into Pennsylvania by the thousands during the 1700s, along with many other religious groups that were seeking the religious freedom that William Penn was offering. So, I mean, William Penn would go around to like Mennonite and Amish settlements, or at least his emissaries did, or he wrote letters to them or something. And he basically said, come to Pennsylvania. So William Penn, I think, as many of us know, was a wealthy Englishman. He was Quaker, and being Quaker, he was persecuted in England, and he dreamt of this place where he and other people could practice freedom of religion. So he was granted the historic lands of the Lenape people by the king of England, who laid claim to those lands under the doctrine of discovery. So I don't think 
probably too many of our listeners would think, oh, the doctrine of discovery, that's a Catholic thing. But I've come across people who say, oh, no, no, that's a Catholic thing. So it's not really our thing. And I just Mm want to, you've made this very clear too. Like it is our thing. Mm -hmm. And when I say that specifically Mennonites, but not just Mennonites, I mean, even people who don't religiously identify as Catholic. Uh, And this story is the story of why it is our thing. So my ancestors had multiple reasons for coming. I always just assumed religious freedom was the main thing. But I think some people were also attracted to the prospect of being able to farm these large tracts of land where the climate and the soil were similar to that of the Alsace, which is the area that is now, I believe, a part of Germany. It goes back and forth between Germany and France, I think. And that's where my family moved to after they left Switzerland because of religious persecution. And when they were in Alsace, they were given land to farm that was higher up the mountain that nobody else wanted to bother with because they were refugees. And they're like, okay, go, you, you can have that land. I mean, they were probably renting. Jacob, along with these other Amish families, helped found the first Amish settlement in the Americas at North Gill, Pennsylvania. So they settled there. And then about 20 years later, the French Indian War happens. And France and England went to war over control of the territories west of the Appalachian Mountains. So basically two colonizer countries who, quote unquote, owned the land or thought they did, thanks to the doctrine of discovery, they're fighting over it. So so you're saying there basically there were two states that were both sort of trying to make that claim of discovery, France and England. That's my understanding, yes. And even though my family lived east of the Appalachian Mountains, still the war was happening all over the place. Many of those native tribes ended up allying with the French in this war, and they began to attack border settlements in Pennsylvania and New York to drive the white settlers out of their ancestral lands. And my family, the Hostetler family, lived in these border settlements. And between November 1756 and June 1757, several families in this North Kill area were attacked. Some of them were killed. Others were carried away as captives. So it was an anxious time for these Amish families, my family. So you're saying, just to make sure I got it here, um, Sherry, England and France were at war and there were some native people that were part of that. And so you're saying the Hostetlers, several of the families were attacked by native people. Native people with French, like, I I can't speak of all of the attacks, but I know in the attack on my great, 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 great grandfather in this family, it was a group of Lenape warriors who were also allied with French scouts who were with them. Mm-hmm. So they were, they are part of the war. They were part of the war. Yeah. They're, they're not even the collateral damage. They're actually the targets because they want to get these folks out of this area. And my understanding is it not only would have helped the Lenape people, but it was certainly going to help the French in their war against England and trying to, you know, win this land. There's so many details. I mean, this is how much the story has been passed down. On the evening of September 19, 1757, the young people of the neighborhood get together for at the Hostetler farm. They're preparing apples for drying. I called that growing up schnitzing. You'd cut up apples and you'd dry them and then you'd use those in like pies and other things. And then afterward, they stayed for a social until late at night. Family eventually goes to bed. But in the middle of the night, the dog wakes up and he's barking, going crazy. Everybody in the family wakes up. And one of the sons, also named Jacob, opens the door and he's shot in the leg. 
So it soon becomes apparent that they're being attacked by local Lenape tribes under the command of French scouts. In spite of his son's pleas, there's several sons, to let them defend themselves with the guns they had, Jacob, the the elder, says, no, we aren't going to do that. We are non-resistant. We believe in the doctrine of non-resistance. We are pacifists. We will not take the life of any person, even in self-defense. The story I'd heard was that the sons really put up a fight because they were good with guns. They they were good marksmen. They knew they could take care of themselves, basically. If they did, they could defend themselves if they did this. So eventually, three members of the family are killed, the mother, a son, and daughter. And then three are taken captive, including the father, Jacob. And Jacob escapes after several months. That, that's its own long story. But the two boys stay with the tribes that they're basically adopted into for several years. And they were finally released after a peace treaty between the indigenous tribes and the British army. But when I say released, they did not want to go. They didn't want to leave what they now saw as their Lenape families. So they were actually forced to return back to the Amish settlement. And that's a whole sideline. We don't need to go down. We could, but that was very common The Europeans would take Native people as captives. The Native people would take European people as captives. My understanding is the European settlers never, who had been taken captive and adopted into these families, almost never wanted to go back. Whereas the opposite, when these Native people who had been taken captive always wanted to go back. And that was a little detail about the story that always really intrigued me when I was a kid, like... What was going on that they really loved this life they were living and felt? So anyways, intriguing story. And then I went on later to find out that that was actually very common. So you're telling me that as you were growing up, this is a family story that was really, it was shared. Well, to be fair, I don't know that my dad ever sat us down in front of the fireplace and said, now come here, children, and I'll tell you the story. But I have a very vivid memory of sitting in my grandparents' home and reading this huge Hostetler genealogy book that at the front of it, there's this like 25-page story about this and just being riveted by it. Mm. Our junior year of high school, we all had to do genealogical charts Mm -hmm. as a way of learning about history. And most of the people in my little class actually can trace themselves back to this Jacob Hostetler. And that story was well known by everybody from what I could tell. Like everybody knew the story. It was just very al- resident and alive in that community and in many Amish Mennonite communities, I think. And when you were growing up, what did that mean to you? How did you sort of apply that to you or make sense of it about your, your life and your family? What did you think about it? I thought it was always presented, you know, it, as Jacob was being held up as an exemplar of faith for his commitment to nonviolence under attack, that they remain faithful. I should say he remained faithful in the hour of Soros Mm -hmm. trial. And then, of course, it made me think like, wow, would I have made the Mm -hmm. same choice he did? Could I have? You know, I hoped I would. I hoped I could be faithful and obedient and so it really uh, was held up as a moral story that, I, you know, I that I'm grateful for. It is at one level a story that really is about somebody's commitment to their faith mm-hmm. in a way that is commendable, mm-hmm. I think. 
But the story was never placed within its larger historical context of settler colonialism. In fact, I get this um, newsletter from the Jacob Hostetler Family Association. And in the very last edition of the newsletter, March 2021, this man named David R. Swartz acknowledges at last that our family was complicit in what he called the European invasion of North America. And as he said, their farms would not have been possible without the backing of the British Empire. Their farms would not have been possible without wars and dozens of broken promises and treaties between the U.S. government and various indigenous people groups. Their farms would not have been possible without help from the land offices of Pennsylvania that gave them land designated as vacant. Vacant. This story about an individual, this individual man who's making a, a stand about his faith, it's told without really explaining the wider context of what was going on at that time. Exactly. I mean, especially the wider context being settler colonialism. It's often placed within, you know, the French and Indian War context, but it's never placed within this context of settler colonialism. Oh, I see. I think that's the awareness that a lot of white settlers are coming to more and more. I mean, maybe it's just because I'm living in this world, but just the fact that that article I just quoted would have appeared in this newsletter makes me think that more and more people who come from white settler backgrounds, maybe especially in the Mennonite white settler backgrounds, are becoming aware of this. So can I say some stuff that I had learned recently about settler colonialism. I would love to hear that. And I mean, I think it's important to talk that out, please. I'm also aware, Sarah, that you probably know like way more about this than I do, but I, you know, I knew what settler colonialism was. It's just that I had to do a presentation recently and I really dove into it a little bit more. And I was really intrigued by the ways in which the definition of settler colonialism really came together with my family history. So settler colonialism is a distinct type of colonialism that functions by replacing indigenous populations with an invasive settler society that over time develops a distinctive identity and sovereignty. So an examples of settler colonialist societies would be Canada, the United States, South Africa, Australia, Israel. This was helpful for me. India was obviously a colonized country, but not in a settler colonial way. Mm. Indigenous Indian people were not replaced with this quote-unquote invasive settler society that over time comes to uh, form a distinctive identity that becomes then the identity, the dominant culture identity of that country. Settler colonial colonizers come to stay. So unlike soldiers or traders or colonial governors, they are there to stay. They want to permanently occupy. Settler colonial societies around the globe tend to rely on remarkably similar, this intrigued me, spatial constructs, power structures, and social narratives. So 
One of the most important of those, I think, spatial constructs, power structures, and social narratives is this idea of terra nullius, which is a Latin term for empty or unused land. So if lands are declared terra nullius by European powers, if they're quote-unquote vacant, then settlers are justified in taking the land and carving up these unused indigenous-held lands into discrete packets of private property. One of the things I think about in terms of what you're saying, Sherry, and this is the way this is active in my life today, as you know, I live on a reservation, the homeland of the Confederated Bands and Tribes of the Yakima Nation, and it's still really common to hear neighbors who were settlers, the descendants of settlers, say that nobody was using the land and that's why they were there. And even sort of tut-tut about the misuse of land now. So such a tiny fraction of land is still owned by um, the Yakima people in this uh, reservation where I live. And yet there are still, to this very day, neighbors saying, oh, you know, it's squandered and it's misused and, and sort of a justification for taking it over is based in the in that narrative. It's not being used. It's just not being used. So it's, it's not being used for like purposes of producing something or profit. Is that what do you think that means by it's not being used? Well, well, it is being used. And of course, you know, my husband says is it doesn't count as use if it doesn't have a mall on it. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he puts it. If it doesn't have a mall on it, then it's empty, you know, as opposed to, oh my gosh, you know, this is, riparian area that's necessary, right. you know, for the watershed to be healthy and, and et cetera. You know, it's just right. like, oh, let's drain that and put them all on it. Well, my understanding is, and I'm sure this still happens, but back when my family was settling, indigenous people didn't practice agriculture the way Europeans did, which doesn't mean they didn't practice any agriculture. They just didn't do it the way Europeans did. And so Europeans declared the land terra nullius because it wasn't being used in conformity with European agricultural practices. And, you know, I'm struck by the fact that in other places besides the U.S., Mennonites and Amish were invited by monarchs or governments into places to essentially be settler colonialists, to farm or use the land in the proper way and basically displace indigenous populations. This happened in Russia. Mennonites farmed the right way. They were invited in by, I believe, Catherine the Great and displaced some of the indigenous populations there, which were really pissed off at them. And Mm -hmm. some of those, you know, chickens came home to roost during the Russian Revolution. But I'm struck, Sarah, that it's happening in Mexico today as old colony Mennonites are, I believe, invited. Maybe they're not invited. I know they're coming into Mexico at least living near Mayan communities, and they're practicing industrial agriculture. Threatening their traditional crops and bees and et cetera, because they're using GMOs, genetically modified organisms in Mexico. Yeah. To continue, so then these settler collectives create or empower a state to then defend these private properties from indigenous people who are seen as inherently threatening. And the power of settler state structures is often embodied in the form of frontier police forces. And I know this is true today. I'm thinking of Nicaragua. Yeah, exactly, where we've spent a lot of time working. And in the case of my host settler ancestors in Pennsylvania, there was a military force there, but there were also these militias made up of Scotch-Irish settlers 
who effectively basically kind of stood in as frontier police forces. And so these Scotch-Irish settlers provided protection from the Lenape, from which, honestly, my pacifist Amish ancestors benefit, even while keeping their own hands ethically clean. So they weren't going to fight, but the Scotch-Irish sure will (laughs) and uh, would. And so they really did you know, benefit from these, call it a frontier police forces, and also these military forts that defended these private properties from the indigenous people. The last piece of this that I want to mention is that all of these powers are exercised based on carefully constructed racist narratives. You know, consider the way that indigenous people have and are considered to be savage, and so they are in need of care from the civilized settler states. If you can't hear my air quotes, please do. This narrative dehumanizes indigenous peoples and then supports this parallel narrative of the peaceful, adventurous, and virtuous settlers, these brave pioneers who are held up as paragons of new settler nations that are carved out of these frontier spaces. And when I read that, I thought, wow, that story of my family in most of its tellings plays right into that settler colonialist narrative of indigenous people as savages and then of these virtuous and peaceful Amish colonists. I was at a Mennonite gathering recently, and one of the speakers there, uh, I think trying to be inclusive and kind, because I was there, you know, to participate in the gathering, said, you know, historically, Indigenous peoples were not all savage and violent. There were some good Indigenous peoples who actually helped the settlers to make their way. And we have to remember that. And so I thought, oh, okay, so those are my choices. I'm either in the role of the violent savage or else the helpful guide. Mm. The narrative is about the settler. Is the native person a hindrance to the settler or a help to the settler? Right. (laughs) Because the settlement of our country, that's what it's about. It's not about you know, hey, we have these different narratives because we have these different human experiences that happen. I I was really shocked by that, I have to say, because this this gathering was recent. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's unfortunately just a great example of how that narrative just, I mean, continues to live on and on and on. I mean, it's basically, yes, it's from the settler point of view, and the indigenous people are either savages or, as you said, they're helpful, which is, whoa, (laughs) I see that when I read most of the stories of this Hostetler family and how they came over and blah, blah, blah. Even if the word savages is not used, that's what the portrayal is. Some of it that says, oh, you know, in the beginning, the Lenape and the Amish people just lived in harmony. And it's a little bit more of that kind of, they were, then they were helpful Indians, you know, (laughs) but... (laughs) So anyways, there's this realization I had today when I was just thinking about this story and how much of it I wanted to tell you because there's so many details associated with it. 
including the words that the mother supposedly said as she was killed. I mean, just this incredible amount of detail. Mm. And that I also just knew so much about my ancestors. I can trace my genealogy coming and going. I mean, I can tell you who is my second and fourth and third cousins very easily. I mean, not off the top of my head, but it would be very easy for me to figure all that out. And I'm sort of embarrassed to say that today I was just struck by what a privilege it is. I mean, I'm not saying I've never sort of had that realization, but I really had it today. You know, I've known for a while that I have this privilege that comes from the fact that my ancestors have owned farmland in this country since before it was even the United States. And that though my family was never rich, they really enjoyed the stability that came from never having their family split up. Hmm from owning land, from never being displaced, from being able to stay in the same place over generations. I mean, my family has lived in Holmes County, Ohio, since I think it was like the 1820s. And with that comes not just secure land tenure, but the privilege, I think, of being able to pass down family stories and family culture and family history. It's like you've got this, I don't know, the security and the stability and this longevity in one place. And so I have access to the, to all of that. And I think of what a contrast that is to your own story. Mm, Yeah. Well, yeah. And I, I appreciate you saying that. And when you're talking, what I'm thinking about Sherry is the pattern in the United States of removing Indigenous people from their lands by removing children from their parents, Mm -hmm. removing Indigenous peoples first in the, in the boarding school era and then after the boarding school era is really wrapping up, this, this program by the Bureau of Indian Affairs to place Indian kids in white foster homes and uh, white adoptive homes, this big call among Christians in the United States to adopt Indian kids, what in Canada they call what was it, the big scoop, trying to, to take um, Indian kids off reserves or reservations and place them in white homes. And then after that, through the foster care system, just removing so many children that by 1978, you know, one in four indigenous kids in some areas, other areas in the United States, one in three were living in white homes. Wow. Just the intentional removal to ensure that Indigenous identity would not happen or to ensure assimilation. In your book, This Land is Not Empty, you have this one really devastating sentence, and I'm not going to say it verbatim, but where you just say, like, I am a displaced person without this history, without this identity, without land. And I think some of that really belies some of the romanticization of that some people have about, you know, Native Americans in this country. Like, I just think they think everybody is like wearing feathers and, you know, dancing and singing in traditional ways. And (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, yeah, the fact is so many people have been so stripped of their culture because of planned practices.
out of their culture because of planned practices. I agree with that. But I want to get back to your story, Sherry. And you're sharing with us about this um, settler colonialism. And when did you start to to realize this? Or when did you start to put it together in, in your own life? I mean, you had this really powerful narrative of um, your ancestor being noble. When did this start to, I mean, and I'm not, please don't hear me saying that your ancestor is not noble. You know, that's not at all what I mean to say. But when did you start to to think about, you know, the context in a different way? Well, I, you know, I don't have this one big aha moment. Mm-hmm. I feel like it was a slow dawning. I mean, I, I went to seminary when I was in my 20s. We talked a lot about systemic oppression. That was a huge piece of it. And I I definitely made some connections to my Pennsylvania settler family. But I'm, you know, I'm still to this day learning about it. Just the part that I just mentioned to you about how the host settler story plays right into the settler colonialist narrative. That's something I just realized maybe a month ago. So I feel like I'm still, you know, waking up to it. But I will say the one time I can remember having this huge aha was only five years ago. And it was when you and I had already started this coalition. And for some reason, I had always really focused on my Hostetler immigrants who came to Pennsylvania. But what I didn't realize was that, you know, I grew up in Ohio. My family, like I said, moved there, I believe in the 1820s or at least early 1830s. And I don't know what I realized. I think I was doing a little bit of investigation into that history. And what I realized was that my Amish ancestors who came to Ohio were the first white settlers who came into that part of Holmes County after, basically after the Indian Wars, um, after that land had been cleared, quote unquote, through military violence. And here these pacifist ancestors of mine are the first on the scene to then buy this land from the military reserve and start farming it. And, you know, when I was growing up, people would talk about finding arrowheads when they were out plowing. My dad has two of them that he found when he was plowing when he was younger. I don't know why I had never made that connection, but I hadn't. And the day I made it, I literally went to bed and I didn't get up for five hours. I was, I just felt such grief over that because Pennsylvania is not my home. I mean, I feel this really deep connection to the land in Ohio. We talked about that before. And to realize that so directly that that land, which I just love and feel this connection to, was so ill-gotten. I mean, all land is ill-gotten, but this was just so direct. It was, like I said, it was my ancestors got this land as a result of military violence. And I just felt like there's just blood in the soil that I I didn't know I was so directly connected to. Yeah. I, I appreciate you sharing and being vulnerable and, and talking about this, Sherry. And, you know, it's interesting that you say that. I live on ill-gotten land also. I'm an indigenous woman, but I live on the lands of not my own people, but the, the lands of the Yakima Nation. And one of the things that my son and I have done, and we do with the turning of the seasons, is pray over the land itself, for healing for the land itself. Mm. Because of the mm. the history of just 
brutal violence and oppression mm. um, that's taken place in our home. And from my point of view as stewards, I see myself as a as a steward. That's such a weird word that's been so, you know, misused, I think, in the church. But <laughs> a caretaker. I think of myself as a caretaker, not an owner, but a caretaker of this land. Mm. Sort of thinking about, you know, the spiritual life of the land itself mm. and praying for that restoration, the restoration of the soil, the restoration of the waters, mm. the restoration and healing for the land itself is something that, you know, we, we do that with every season because the land where I live, I love that land. I do. Mm. I love it. And I recognize that so much brutality has happened there. Thank you for saying that. That just actually felt really healing just to imagine doing that. And, you know, I'm going back in June to visit my dad for the first time in a year. And I, I'm going to do that. Hmm. I'm going to say a prayer for the restoration of that land, the healing of it. So thank you. I, that's really meaningful to me. Oh, you bet. And so one more thing I want to say, Sherry, and feel free to just pass on this if you don't, if you don't want to talk about it. But one of the things, a recurring conversation you and I have had is the difference between individual level sin or the focus on that and structural sin. So often we hold up individuals and stories of individuals as being noble. And we want to think about the world in that way, that our lives are, are made up because of a series of our individual choices instead of thinking about structures that we're also part of. And I wonder if, if you wouldn't have anything to say about that related to settler colonialism. Well, I just think that distinction between individual sort of level action and then the structures is so helpful because I, I want to say that on an individual level, I think my great, 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 great grandfather, Jacob was faithful mm -hmm. when it came to that decision to be true to his non-resistance and his pacifism. But unfortunately, he was involved in a structure and a system that was violent. I'm looking forward to the day. I think I believe this day will happen when I could sit down with him and ask him about that. You know, did he have any inklings that he was involved in this system that was inherently violent? And I think I've often pondered the fact that, you know, my great, 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 great grandfather left Europe because he was the victim of structural violence, of state violence. But then he comes to this country and the second he steps his foot on this country, he becomes an instrument of state violence here. I say that while also affirming that I think many of my ancestors have lived, they've done morally good things. And <laughs> we are involved in these bigger structures. And you know, you and I both believe, and you have taught me so much about this, Sarah, that unless you're working to actively dismantle those structures, well, that's what I think it means to live a moral life, is to actively dismantle those structures. Thank you for just sharing your your story. It's such a cool story and and so great to hear about how you've come to this work. Yeah, I just really appreciate that because I think 
you know, regardless of what your ancestor knew or didn't know, mm. or what my ancestor knew or didn't know, we are alive now. We're here. And, and how do we, <laughs> you know, how do we honor them with the way that we choose to live now? Yes, I do believe I'm honoring my, my, my ancestors by doing this work of repair and healing. There's this concept, I think, within Catholic spirituality of the healing of memories. Hmm. But then there's also this idea of healing multi-generational trauma. And um, mm -hmm. even the people who are either the perpetrators or the ones who are not being actively violated are participating in that trauma. And they are also experiencing it. So I also feel like I'm a part of helping to heal the multi-generational trauma that my family has experienced. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I could I could say so much more. <laughs> Always, I would anxious to hear so much more. But this is a good place to end with those words. And um, thank you, Sherry, for being willing to share this with us. Thank you for asking. This podcast is hosted by us, co-produced by the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery Coalition and Anabaptist World. The opinions expressed here are ours, however, and do not reflect official positions of Anabaptist World. For more information, go to anabaptistworld.org and dofdmeno.org. Audio editing was done by Shannon Kaler. And theme music by Micah Peplo and Shannon. Thank you. Thank you.